Father, it is good for us to reflect on and to confess our neediness. Lord, we are so needy, we don't know how needy we are. We need your help to remind us of our neediness, to remember that our hearts beat not because of our wills or our doing, but yours, that you've protected us in this last week and sustained us in this last year. You've provided for us in so many good ways. And if you didn't give, then we wouldn't have. And if you didn't make live, then we wouldn't live. And if you didn't save us, we would be doomed. Help us to feel our neediness. Help us to feel the need for a great Savior. Help us to feel our neediness, to read your word, to see it, to hear it, to receive it. Lord, we pray that you would work through your word this morning as we look into it. We need you, and we even need this difficult chapter that we'll look at this morning. Show us how we need it, why we need it, and change us by it, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. You can be seated. Well, that difficult chapter I just referred to is 2 Samuel 14. If you have a Bible, turn there, 2 Samuel 14. And let me begin by asking you to think about that odd experience called deja vu. I'm sure we've all had moments of feeling like we've been somewhere before. Someone said something like that before. I'm no expert on the psychology of deja vu, but just speaking personally and experientially, deja vu isn't an exact reliving of precise details and circumstances. It's not Groundhog Day. It's just some sort of vague feeling of familiarity. It's a suspicion that something seems similar to something else. It's noticing one or two small details that sort of feel similar, but strangely so. Well, I'm sure none of the biblical authors were aware of the French phrase déjà vu, but they do seem to know the experience of it. And they do seem to take advantage of it. In other words, the more we read the Bible, the more familiar we get with its different stories and themes, the more deja vu experiences we should have in it. Yeah, sometimes the Bible does, in fact, retell the same story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in their own way, all tell the Jesus story. The books of First and Second Chronicles cover the same territory as the books of Samuel and, and Kings. But, but that's not what I'm referring to here. I'm talking about deja vu, a vague feeling of familiarity, a few details that feel similar, but strangely so. And such is the case in 2 Samuel 13 and 14. Last week we looked at 2 Samuel 13, a dark chapter with the rape of Tamar and the murder of Amnon. On the heels of chapter 11, it's a deja vu experience all over again. Remember, in 2 Samuel 11, it was their father, David, who sinned in adultery and then murder. And then in chapter 13, Amnon, a son of David, rapes his half-sister. Another son of David, Absalom, waits two years to exact revenge on the rapist and brother 
It's sex, sins, and murder 2.0. Like father, like son, but only worse. But 2 Samuel 13 is not just a deja vu experience of 2 Samuel 11. It goes back further than that. Let's imagine that you had been reading the book of Genesis in your morning devotions in recent days, and then last week we came to 2 Samuel 13. You might have scratched your head, and Tamar might be the first clue. You might think, isn't there a Tamar in Genesis? Yeah, it's Genesis 38. The Tamar in Genesis is not a good girl, unlike the Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, but there are some vague similarities. You have sexual sins in Genesis 38. Judah sleeps with Tamar, his daughter-in-law. So you have incest in both the chapters. And that happens in part because Judah's two sons had just died. Just like David, by 2 Samuel 13, has now lost a second son. Genesis 38 takes place during sheep shearing time. And that's exactly when Absalom got his revenge on his brother Amnon during sheep shearing time. In 2 Samuel 13, David is mourning the the death of a favored son. And in Genesis 37, Judah is mourning for a favorite son that he thinks is dead, Joseph. Of course, Joseph isn't dead. His brother's told their father that he was dead, but they sold him into slavery. And remember how they tore off Joseph's robe, his coat of many colors. That's what they brought to the father as proof that he was dead. Well, remember that in 2 Samuel 13, Tamar, after she was ravaged by her brother, she tore her robe, it says. Literally, her coat of many colors. It's a rare Hebrew word. It's only twice in the whole Bible, once with Joseph, once with Tamar. The similarities just keep going all the way back to Genesis 34, where Dinah was raped and Jacob, her father, did nothing about it, just as David did nothing about the rape of his daughter, Tamar. And so in Genesis 34, it's Dinah's brothers that avenge her rape with blood just as Absalom did in 2 Samuel 13. And Dinah's brothers, after avenging with blood, they they have to flee, just as Absalom did at the end of 2 Samuel 13. Well, are these deja vu-like similarities just coincidences? Surely not. Is it just A lazy fictional writer, whoever wrote the second part of Samuel, um, he's stumped. He can't come up with what to to talk about next, what happened next. And so he's looking for inspiration back in the book of Genesis, but not covering his tracks too well. He's using all the same names and coat of many colors and things like that. No, this isn't fiction. This isn't made up. Both Genesis and Samuel really happened. So why are there so many parallels and similarities between those those two sections of God's word. Well, I think it's a subtle lesson about how the same old problems keep resurfacing. Sin and its effects are the same old, same old. Second verse, same as the first. 
messed up families with their web of lies and sins and hatred and all the consequences that comes from it. Here you have in 2 Samuel a new day, a new millennia, new promises, a new family. And you have the same old problems and sins as before. Relentlessly, the sin problem just keeps staying there and won't go away. And Jacob wasn't the answer, neither was Judah. David isn't the answer, and neither are his sons. We need a better son. We need a better king. And already, we've come to that place where we usually end a message from the Old Testament. We usually end thinking about how this all points ahead to Jesus. He's the true king, the better son, the son of man, the eternal one who alone can take that eternal throne promised to David and rule on it forever and ever. Yes, the Old Testament is for our instruction, we're told, 1 Corinthians 10. It does have moral example for us, usually negative moral example. There are warnings in these stories, yes, but the most important thing about the Old Testament is that it was a time of promise and waiting. Everyone in the story either advances the promise or doesn't, and the ones that advance the promise, they let us down. Promises are made. At times they appear to be fulfilled. And then the rug is pulled out from under them and it's clear that it's not yet and it's not him. Not this one. Until we get to Jesus. I've said before that the Old Testament is to be read with alternating responses of yup and nope. So at times David looks like the, the yup. This is it. He's not Saul. He's a better king. But then he sins, he fails, he's weak. Nope, it ain't him. It ain't him, and we know as much from the Old Testament itself. Like in 2 Samuel 7, where God gave grand promises, God also said that another would come after David's death. God said, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He'll build a house for my name, referring to Solomon, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Like David and like Solomon, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. God promised, your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. So David sins, he's disciplined of the Lord. We saw that Last two weeks ago now in chapter 12, David repented of his sin. He was forgiven, but there was discipline still to come. That's what was promised in 2 Samuel 7. That's what we saw last week with wayward sons and a weak king wreaking havoc on a house. And yet we know where the promises are going, and these are promises not to be threatened by any of this. And yet here we are in the story. Here we are now looking at the end of chapter 38, or sorry, 13, let's read just the last two verses there to remind ourselves where we left off last week. That Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. 
Now, I need to repeat what I said last week, that the Hebrew in verse 39 at the end of chapter 13 here is less clear than the ESV has it. There are, there are different Hebrew words that could either be used positively or negatively. And here it's not clear which is which, and maybe it represents a conflicted king. I mean, he longed to go out. That looks like, sounds like reconciliation. But maybe he longed to go out in judgment. He was comforted about his death. Comforted is a very positive word. But in Hebrew, it can also mean grieved. Grieved about his death. And so in chapter 14, verse 1, we have the same kind of thing with unclear language and hence likely an unclear king, an ambivalent king. Joab, it says, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. Went out how? We're not told. Went out against him? Went out for him? Missed him? Hated him? As we said last week about chapter 13, so it's true again, and even more so in chapter 14, that appearances can be deceiving. Appearances can be deceiving. And when matters look like they start to improve in chapter 14, they actually go from bad to worse. No one wants to face up to what has been done, to what has happened. And the only ones that do try to face up to the scenario they're in, they don't have God's purposes in mind, and they don't help get to a solution. They don't face up to it. Nine times the word face is used in this chapter, at least in Hebrew. I'll point it out as we read through it. I'll point out where we can see this word face pop up again. It seems like people need to face up to things, and they just won't face up to it. The first of five turns in this chapter takes place in the first 20 verses. Let's read the first 20 verses of chapter 14 to get us started. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments. Do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. The king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I'm a widow. My husband is dead. And your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen against your servant. And they say, give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal, my only coal that is left, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give you orders, uh, give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord the king. On my father's house, let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, the avenger of blood, that the avenger of blood would kill no more, and my son be not destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. 
Then the woman said, please let your servant speak a word to my lord, the king. He said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself. Inasmuch as the king does not, does not bring his banished one home again, we must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life. And he devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I've come to say this to my lord, the king, because the people have made me afraid. And your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his servant. For the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of God. And your servant thought, the word of my lord, the king, will set me at rest. For my lord, the king, is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. And the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. The woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that, that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Job who commanded me. It was he who put all, the, all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, in order to change the face of things, literally, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. We'll stop there. The first of five turns is Joab's plan. But is it wisdom or craftiness? With each of these turns in the story, there's a question about what's happening. It looks one thing, it's actually another. Here we have David's loyal general concocting a plan to get the exiled Absalom back home. Why? Well, probably very practically. Absalom is the oldest. He is the perceived heir to the throne. There would be no doubt unrest in the land with things like this in the royal family. We'll find out later in this chapter that Absalom was quite well liked by the public. He was famous. And it's been a long time. It's now been five years since Amnon ravaged Tamar. And it's been three years since Absalom killed him and fled. So Joab gets a wise woman, we're told, to act out apart. And he put the words in her mouth. We're told she's wise. And we'll see that the plan sort of works. But what kind of wisdom are we dealing with here? Back in chapter 13, the same Hebrew word is translated differently regarding Jonadab. Jonadab, we're told there, was very crafty. Here, this woman is said to be wise. Same word. It can go either way. In fact, most often in the Bible, it's positive, not negative. But not here. Not here in 13 or in chapter 14. These people are crafty. Joab, who's behind it all, is not interested in justice. Neither is he really interested or too concerned about true reconciliation. He's a practical man. So you can imagine in the pre-planning 
Perhaps Joab asked himself, hmm, what has worked before when David's mind needed to be changed about something? And perhaps he remembered Abigail back in 1 Samuel 25. David was about to kill her husband when this beautiful and, and, and shrewd woman, Abigail, talked David down. Perhaps Joab would remember just what we saw a couple weeks ago. Nathan the prophet coming to the king, and he tells a story to get, J to get David to change his mind about things. He, he uses a parable. And like Nathan's story about the rich man and the poor man, where David was the rich man, you are the man, so the woman's story is meant to apply to David. And Joab combines those two, tapti two tactics, uh, two tactics, a, a woman in a parable, except she doesn't represent it as a parable, as a, as a real-life story. She's a widow. She had two sons. The two sons got in a fight. One accidentally died. Their surviving son is now hidden somewhere because the rest of the clan wants to avenge the other brother's death and, and kill this one, and then she'd have no more sons which means there's none to care for her in her old age, and there's none to pass on the family name. So she wants the king to give her son a pardon and protection, and David agrees. He even vows before the Lord that he'll do it. And then it's there that she gives her own you-are-the-man kind of moment. Verse 13, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself, inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. It seemed to make sense. You're willing for this banished son of mine to come back and be protected. Why not bring back your banished son? Of course, he's putting a negative slant on it. David didn't banish Absalom. He fled. He didn't pursue him, but he didn't banish him. And there are more problems than just that with with comparing the two stories, her fake story with what really happened between Amnon and Absalom and David. There are different circumstances going on. In her scenario, she's describing manslaughter. With Absalom, what we saw was first-degree, premeditated, cold-blooded murder. Her scenario involved one of two sons, an only remaining son, but that's not the case with David. It's not the case. He has other sons. We've, we know who the, the, the real heir is going to be. It's Solomon. David doesn't need the second-born son or third-born son to fulfill God's promises. He, he would not be left destitute without Absalom. She resorts to sentimentality. You see in verse 14, she says, We must all die. We're like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. I mean, one is dead. It's like water on the ground. You can't put it back in the bottle. Let it go. Absalom in exile does not fix Amnon being dead. She uses half-truths. You see verse 14, the second half. God will not take away life, and he devises means that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Sometimes those two things are true. God will not take away life. He devises means so the banished one will not remain an outcast. And sometimes those things are not true at all. 
I mean, you have in 2 Samuel 6, God taking Uzzah's life because he touched the ark. On the other hand, you also have David, who at one time was banished from the land, and praise God, God brought him back. You have the story of Cain and Abel, which this sounds very similar. There's some deja vu here in, in, in the Cain and Abel story, where they're in a field, Cain and Abel in Genesis 4. Cain killed his brother. God didn't kill Cain for it. God doesn't take away life. She's half true. Yeah, but, but Cain also was banished for the rest of his life. He was on the run. He fled. You see, those things there in verse 14 are true, but not universally true. And her half-truths are a lot like Satan's temptation in Genesis 3. Satan used half-truths, represented as whole-truths, to be totally untrue. This woman practically quotes a line from the serpent's temptation. Verse 17, my Lord the King is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. That's what the serpent told Eve in the garden. You'll know good from evil. In fact, when we're first introduced to the serpent in the story of Genesis, we're told that he was more crafty than all the creatures. He was wise, but wickedly wise. She resorts to flattery. Did you see that? And that should tell us that this isn't God's kind of wisdom here. Verse 17, there's flattery. Then again in verse 20, my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. Well, that's a bit much. That's not true. So Joab's plan, it's a crafty plan with a crafty woman. And it sort of works. Sort of. Secondly, let's look at David's decision in verses 21 to 24. And then we'll ask a question about David's decision. Verse 21, Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I grant this. Go bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, Let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come into my presence or before my face. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come before the king's face. There's David's decision. Is it justice or capitulation? Justice or capitulation? Joab's scheme sort of worked. David allowed Absalom to return to Jerusalem, but never to see his face. The end result is not a just one. Justice has not been met. Amnon, the rapist, deserved punishment, yes, but not execution. And Absalom's vengeance upon that rapist was, was murder, not justice. And the law demanded death for death. But David did nothing. And Absalom was brought home without justice, but without the king's presence. So there's not justice, and neither is there mercy. There's no forgiveness. David just capitulates. 
based on a a made-up story that only slightly related to his scenario. He doesn't even get mad at Joab for all this, this ruse that's going on here. It's as if David sees himself as backed into a corner, having placed himself in checkmate once again. And that was a good thing when it came from from Nathan's confrontation back in chapter 12. It's a very bad thing here. This woman, nor Joab, they were no prophet. This woman was a stranger. And behind her was a shrewd army general known for his godlessness and his pragmatism. This is a weak king. Too weak to forgive. Too weak to bring to justice. Too weak to seek true reconciliation. And David was called to judge as king. He was called to do hard things. So are you, Christian, members of Desert Springs Church. We're called to judge. Oh, I know Matthew 7 1 says we shouldn't judge. Don't judge lest you be judged. But that's not the only verse in the Bible about judging. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 both use that word, judge, to say, to talk about something that we should do. We are to assess things as a church. We are to decide things as a church. 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 are like Matthew 18, talking about church discipline. They're chapters about church discipline. When reconciliation fails... And when there is no repentance, a decision is made, a difficult decision is made by a church to say to one who professes Christ or used to profess Christ, I don't see it. I love you enough to say it. You're not acting like it. This isn't just a momentary blip on the screen, but prolonged persistence in in unrepentance and sin. And I love you enough to judge this. It's spelled out clearly in Matthew 18 what we're to do. It's not easy to do it. But here's a great lesson for us from the Old Testament, a reminder that we need to decide some hard things sometimes, even when it's family, even when we're talking about friends. Thirdly, we see Absalom's reputation. In verses 25 to 27, we have a seemingly odd parenthetical comment about Absalom's appearance. Let's read it. Verse 25, now all in Israel, now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. Absalom's reputation, holiness or beauty? Holiness or beauty? Well, it's clearly beauty. Why even bring up holiness? Well, because that phrase, no blemish on him, That's used of priests. That's used of sacrifices in the Old Testament. 
It's used of godliness in general in the Old Testament. It's used in the reverse uh, about Israel at times when they are just full of blemish. But here it's used of Absalom's skin, no blemish. His no blemishness is skin deep. And he's got a head of hair on him. Every year he cuts his hair and afterwards on the floor, 200 shekels of hair is there. That's about six pounds. Now either that's hyperbole, which that's okay. We shouldn't think that's an error in God's word if it's using hyperbole. The Bible is speaking to adults who also use hyperbole. It knows how to do that. God knows how to do that. Or perhaps this is just the, the word in the street. This is the rumor, perhaps started by his barber, who loves being his barber. Once a year, he cuts the prince's hair. He tells his friends, I got to pick up like seven bags of hair and weigh six pounds. Perhaps this is a rumor that Absalom himself has started. You can imagine this Fabio kind of figure, right? Combing his hair, 200 strokes on each side every day. And then celebrating and talking about his haircut once a year. Why is this even here? <laughs> Do you see what a parenthetical comment this is? If you look at the end of verse 24 and then the beginning of verse 28, those are talking about the same thing. It doesn't look like we needed verses 25 to 27. Oh, but this is needed. This is, this is Old Testament narrative storytelling at its best. This is a a foreshadow. Appearances can be deceiving. Remember when we were introduced to Saul back in 1 Samuel and we were told that he was the most handsome man in the land. He was a head taller than every other Israelite. And then we found out that he's little on the inside. He's a weak man. He's not a strong man. We've learned already in this story that God doesn't look on the outward appearance as man does, but he looks on the heart. And with this guy, Absalom, there's no heart, just beauty, just hair. That's his reputation. How about you? What are you known for? What do you want to be known for? Beauty, success, or substance and godliness. You see, this little parenthetical comment here about Absalom and his appearance is also a, a foreshadow about what's to come. This is going to go downhill from here. It isn't just about his appearance or his vanity, but it's also his reputation. He's praised for his handsome appearance. He's famous for it. He's known for it. He's well-liked in the land. He's been on the cover of GQ several times. He has the ear of the people. He has their attention, even while he's years in exile, even while he's at home, but not in favor with the king. And there's another shadow, foreshadow that he named one of his daughters Tamar. You might think, well, of course, that's nice. That's a, that's a good thing. His sister's dead. He named one of his daughters Tamar. Yeah, that's probably instead a sign that he had not at all let go of Amnon's violation of her, nor of David's neglect of the situation. The writing is on the wall here. And we'll see it come to life next week in chapter 15. 
Fourthly, we come to Absalom's persistence. His persistence, verse 28 to 32. So Absalom lived for two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence or before his face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you, Come here, that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It, will not, it would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me go into the presence of the king or before his face. And if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Absalom's persistence. Is it repentance or manipulation? He is persistent. You've got to give him that. And he was rather patient. You've got to give him that. He lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. In other words, in a state of limbo. Think about it. This would mean that he would be in the land, but outside the family. No family events, no festal, festal gatherings, no royal events cut off from his former life. So Absalom's pursuit of David would seem to be reasonable or, or even good, but, but instead what we're dealing with here is a petulant kid who's now all grown up and is very dangerous. So when he can't get a hearing with Joab, he burns his fields like a bully. That gets Joab's attention. And then Absalom demands a verdict. Let me go into the presence of the king, and if there's guilt in me, let him put me to death. The irony is that he is guilty, he does deserve death, but he doesn't think himself guilty, and he doesn't think that his father will have enough guts to put him to death. And he's right. If there is any guilt in me, that phrase is sometimes used of truly righteous saints in the Bible. Like David once, he wrote, search me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. When David said it, it was humble faith, believing that God knew all the secret sins and that God could do something about them. He could forgive them. He could show mercy. He can deal with them. But Absalom just persists in his so-called innocence. And he persists with an ultimatum. It, 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 this is manipulation. And yet again, it works. Sort of. Lastly, the outcome. The outcome here in the final verse. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king and the king kissed Absalom. That's the outcome. It seems like a good finish to the story. But is this reconciliation? Or is this just acceptance? Reconciliation or acceptance? Well, look at what's missing in verse 33. 
There's no conversation that takes place. We're not told that there was. There's no embrace. There's no mention of David's name or that he's the father and this is his son. He's just called the king. Yes, Absalom bowed, but that was just normal fare for entering the throne room of the king. Yes, David kissed Absalom, but but don't think of that in fatherly terms. Think of it in royal terms. It's it's like a judge hitting a gavel. It's a sign of peace. It's a a truce. It's acceptance. It's formality. There's not reconciliation here. The whole scene is cool. It's gamesmanship. It's playing and being played. We can contrast the end of chapter 14 here with how uh, Joseph was reconciled to his brothers back in Genesis 45. What a picture that is of true reconciliation. Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Restoration, talking, repentance, acceptance. We can contrast the end of 2 Samuel 14 with the well-known prodigal son story in Luke 15. Remember that the prodigal, he, he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. That's repentance. That's forgiveness. That's restoration. And there was no repentance in Absalom. There was no forgiveness in David, and there was no reconciliation between them. And here we come again to where we left off last week at the end, talking about how we need a king who is both just and merciful. Where evil is punished, and the repentant can be accepted. We need Jesus. We've sinned against him and his father. We were all born in exile and happy to be there. We need true repentance, not trumped up repentance, not fake bowing, not manipulating or or, or conniving to get our way with him, but true and real and permanent reconciliation. Like that in Colossians 1 where it says that you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. We had reproach. He had none. Jesus had no guilt. Jesus deserved no death. So he alone could go into the presence of the true king, God himself, with no guilt. And yet he went into the presence of his father, not with guilt, but with blood. 
He died for the guilty. And those that believe that and receive that gift, hear that good news and call out to have it as their own, well, then they enter into the king's presence as well. Not as servants, not as frustrating, aggravating, annoying, so-called sons, but as true sons. Those who believe that and receive that are forever changed by it. With Jesus, it is not the same old story. It is not the same old story of sin and its consequences. Second verse, same as the first. No, this is his song. Here's our story. Titus 3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So that being justified, or declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friend, if you're not a Christian... Don't think you can come to God like Absalom did. Don't think you can remain in exile apart from him forever. Come to him like the prodigal did. Come to him like Titus 3 talks about. Giving up on yourself in your old way. Clinging only to a redeemer who died for your sins. Believe that he did die for your sins and he is able to make you righteous, that you might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Christian, let's not forget this story, this grand story that we have come home. We have been reconciled to the Father. There is no going back. We are his and, and he, he is ours. And that most important thing in all the world is settled Settled, settled. We haven't been tolerated, but adopted. And that allows us, it frees us really, it empowers us even to reconcile with others, to forgive others when we've been sinned against, and to ask for forgiveness when we've done the sinning. We don't have to sweep it under the rug. We don't have to be cornered into something. We can lay it all out there before God and each other because our account is settled and we have each other's good in mind. And this is what it's like to live in the home. And yet we're not home yet, are we? You know, one day we will see him. We don't see him yet, Peter tells us. 1 Peter 1. Though you have not seen him, you love him, he says. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. We have great joy, great glory, great hope right now. We love him, yes. We're home in a sense, but we don't yet see him, not face to face. One day we will. That's how Revelation ends. Revelation 22, they will see his face. 
Or 1 John 3 says, when he appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. Oh, to be like him. Oh, to see him. Oh, to be changed by him. Oh, to give him the glory that is his due for being such a just, righteous, and merciful king. He's the only king. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we love you indeed. We do rejoice, not as much as we should, but we can say, yeah, it's inexpressible. And we do long to see you. Would you help us, Lord, to long for you more, to wait patiently before you come, to daily come to you, That's one thing we should pray and one thing we should do. Perhaps some today will come to you for the very first time. And if so, then they will begin a lifelong journey of continually coming to you and coming before you. Help us now as we sing, as we confess, Lord, that we come and we come afresh again this morning. Give us faith, give us joy. Help us, Lord, to marvel at your mercy and kindness to us. Amen.